0: Blob
1: Talk Radio. It's 8 p.m. in London, 3 o'clock in New York, 2 p.m. in Texas, and noon in Los Angeles. You're listening to Radio Stranahan.
2: Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend.
1: You're tuned into Radio Stranahan.
0: And now, here's your presenter... Lee Stranahan.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. It
0: is a Wednesday. Perhaps you've noticed. You're looking quite well. Another great show for you today. Coming up this hour, shortly in fact, Michael Patrick Leahy, my friend and colleague from Breitbart News, talking about immigration and the blockbuster story he had out on Monday about the spike in tuberculosis rates due, in part, to the refugee program. And we're going to have a bunch of stuff in the refugee program this week, by the way. You've heard me talk about the Twin Falls situation. We have a new situation in South Dakota that we will be reporting on more this week. I'll have that story for you at Breitbart. I want to alert you to a story that I have up right now at Breitbart something that actually started here on Radio Stranahan. It's Jay Christian Adams, the election law expert, talking about what Jeff Sessions faces. You know, it's an interesting situation going on right now. The NAACP, five members of the NAACP gave a sit-in, gave, I don't think they gave one, they did one, they did a sit-in at Senator Sessions' office and were eventually be Arrested. Now, I'm I'm of a mixed mind on this, or a mixed drink. It's hard to tell. There were ice cubes at the beginning of the show. You can hear them. That's here. By the way, if you listen to the beginning of Radio Stranahan, you'll hear ice cubes clinking into a glass. That's a subtle suggestion. That it might be time to pull up a beverage. But I'm of a mixed mind on. The NAACP protest. First off, let me just point out that I don't agree with them at all on the subject matter. In other words, I'm a big Jeff Sessions fan, and I think he's a great choice for Attorney General. Like my news story on Breitbart today shows, Christian Adams on this show said he thinks Jeff Sessions is the perfect candidate because he was the state's attorney for Alabama. He understands procedure. He understands the way the law works. He understands how that sort of department functions. Let me also add that Jeff Sessions is a tough hombre. He's not a shrinking violet. He's a guy who was out in front of populism before Trump was. I saw a speech Jeff Sessions gave about a year before Trump ever announced he was running. And Jeff Sessions was out there. By the way, the speech was sponsored by Breitbart News. I was there. Steve Bannon was there. Larry Sola, CEO. I remember that speech very specifically because Larry and I shared an Uber back from CPAC to the hotel and had a great talk. I love Larry. Larry was Andrew's best friend, and he's, you know, currently running Breitbart News. And when I say he was Andrew's best friend, I mean from childhood, he was Andrew's best friend. But that speech is where Jeff Sessions really drove populism home. And I think a lot of the ideological framework for the Trump campaign came out in that speech and other statements by Jeff Sessions. So when I see the NAACP protesting Sessions, I couldn't agree with them less on the substance. I know they hate Jeff Sessions. And I know they're lying about it. I know that they have a liberal agenda. I know that they have a democratic agenda. However, and I almost tweeted something about this last night. I almost tweeted something mocking the NAACP and saying that I wish next time they would get arrested sooner. And part of me feels that way. I feel that way in my heart because I disagree with them on the issue. But I didn't tweet it. I didn't send that out. And there's a reason I didn't send that out. It's because I am in favor of protesting the government. I'm in favor of people using their First Amendment right, of redress of grievances, and doing it to the government. In fact, I don't wish the left did it less. I wish the right did it more. I wish that people who are conservative or libertarian or believed in free, you know, smaller government were populists. I wish that they would show up more. The excuse that I hear from people on the right all the time is, well, I have a job. Well, guess what? So, so do the people at NAACP. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear you have a job. So what? You also have some free time. And the left is simply better at getting people organized. You have a job, you'd probably go to church too, right? You're probably able to do organized activity around your church. So stop complaining. So as I say, I'm of two minds because on one hand, I don't agree with the substance of what the NAACP was protesting. And they got arrested and I'm glad they got arrested because they were breaking the law. But of course, the point of a civil disobedience act like that is to get arrested. Does that make sense? In other words, they didn't do anything. It was a nonviolent protest. It was a sit-in at a government official's office. And again, I'm, I'm okay with that. If any of you want to go out and sit in Chuck Schumer's office, I'll support you. I mean, I assume you're not sitting. You'll probably get some Chobani yogurt while you're there, too, by the way. Ask, see if there's any Chobani yogurt in the fridge. Chuck Schumer is a big sponsor of Hyundai La the CEO of Chobani yogurt, a company I've written about extensively in my daily work of making you smarter about the world. We may get into that with Michael Patrick Lacey a little bit, actually. We may get into it. But so, I don't know. I, like I say, I see the NAACP going. I see them getting arrested. That's part of the exercise. When you do a protest like that, you want to get arrested. You don't just sit there for an hour and leave, right? You want to get arrested. That's the gig. So them getting arrested, I'm fine with that. It gave them the headline and the photo opportunity that they wanted. But I'm interested in your opinion, as as always. Love to hear your calls on this. So give us a call. 619-924-0786. And over again, 619-924-0786. It is eight minutes. Past the hour.
1: By all, first mention uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly, he's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club
0: <laughs> for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Are you tired of the mainstream media and you want to make a difference? Do you read the newspapers or watch TV and think that you can do better? This is Lisa Ranahan, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. You can check it out at citizenjournalismschool.com, and you'll see why I created a place where you can learn to research, write, promote the stories, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I'd like you to go over to citizenjournalismschool.com right now and sign up for a free course I've got for you. It's called Build Your Media Empire. And the course takes you step-by-step online through the things you need to do to set up the platforms so you can share your voice and your stories. I'll show you how to set up materials so you can do writing, podcasting, video. Best of all, it's absolutely free. Go to CitizenJournalismSchool.com and sign up right now.
2: You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us
0: It's Radio Stranahan six one nine nine two four oh seven eight six is the number if you want to call this hour. If you want to talk to Michael Patrick Leahy, he'll be on in just a few minutes. Here, it is about ten minutes past the hour. We're going to have an exciting uh, sponsor announcement. I think I've heard a rumor. There's there's a rumor in the air that we might have a great sponsorship announcement coming up on Radio Stranahan but I can't announce it yet. I'll also have, we had the ad for Citizen Journalism School. I got a big announcement coming about that. Hopefully that's going to happen on Friday or Saturday. We're going to have a big webinar. You're going to be invited to attend. Uh, I've been, look, if, you, if you've been listening to my show or my podcast, Making the News, you've heard about Citizen Journalism School for a long time. I feel in some ways like it's the most important project that I'm doing because it's beyond me, it's beyond my work, it's part of my mission to save journalism. And I I want to tell you, I want to tell you what I've come up with, but I don't want to tell you yet. But I'll tell you this, I can't tell you yet. I'm going to tell you on the webinar. It's a big announcement, and I think you'll be very very happy with it. But I'll tell you, if you do any kind of news blogging at all, If you do any kind of YouTube video work, anything like that, you are going to be very, very interested in what I have to tell you. And you you really are. You're going to be very, very happy with what I have to tell you. Also, working on another interview for Making the News, this one may shock you. I'm very happy with it. I'm going to be interviewing Jose Antonio Vargas. Jose Antonio Vargas is the gay, undocumented immigrant journalist. He was the one who hosted, remember when Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley were interrupted last year while speaking in Arizona at this Netroots Nation event? Jose was the guy who was the moderator of those events. And he's also had a show on MTV. And it's a perfect example now, what I was trying to do with Making the News, we had a couple of guests on, Glenn Greenwald. We have a great interview, two-hour interview up with Michael Kelly right now. These are really good interviews, in part, I think, because they're people who I don't agree with ideologically. They're people who I disagree with on, on a lot of issues, and people who, frankly, are not fans of Breitbart. Glenn Greenwald, in fact, has been getting hassled for even pointing out, as he did in the interview, And I highlighted this in a story on Breitbart. Glenn Greenwald pointed out that, you know, Breitbart was impressive in identifying the voice of people who had been voiceless. And the people on the left are attacking him for that. But I like doing these interviews and I keep them very honest. I'm going to be be honest with Jose Antonio Vargas. I'll tell you something about Jose, though. He's not a jerk. I don't agree with him on the issues. He runs an institutional left-style group, Define American. He's an activist. He's an activist journalist. And I'll tell you one thing, though, about Jose. He's a nice guy. I've dealt with him privately. He's not a jerk. Same with Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald was gracious enough to do the interview with me, and he and he wasn't being a jerk. And And, and Greenwald's a guy who can be flinty the same way i can look i i respect that if if you're going to go up against the establishment you got to have a little bit of cojones right this is this is not work for shrinking violence we had a great conversation and that's the kind of thing we're looking to do that's why boy i wish i could tell you what we're going to be doing in citizen journalism school but i want to save it i will tease it i will let me tease it this way can i tease it this way because I haven't talked about – look, the reason I haven't launched this yet is because as soon as I launch Citizen Journalism School, it creates a whole new set of responsibilities for me. And I have a bunch of responsibilities on my plate. First and foremost, my job at Breitbart News. Now I have the edition of Radio Stranahan every day, Monday through Friday. I have the Stranahan Report newsletter daily, seven days a week, that you can subscribe to dot Stranahan.com, where I bring you news and information. That's just work responsibilities. Uh, of course, I also have a family who I managed to avoid for eight months and would like to not do that again. So I'm back home right now. Then I have health. I have health issues. And I've, I've been real open about this. I've talked about my diabetes. I'm a type 2 diabetic. I will point out, if you're, if you're endlessly fascinated by blood sugar readings, I give you my blood sugar reading every morning on Twitter. And I have managed on this ketogenic diet I've been doing to drop my blood sugar below 100 and I've dropped insulin. I'm no longer taking insulin. That's a big deal because insulin is very expensive for one thing. And I'm feeling better. It was a it was touch and go <laughs> for a while. I don't know, I'll just be honest. It was touch and go. Also, I've uh, ketogenic diet and then I'm I'm out mall walking with my lovely wife We go mall walking every day. It also gives us a chance to have conversations where a screaming four- and six-year-old are not involved. I can't explain the thrill of being able to have an actual conversation with my wife without a four-year-old interjecting. I love my kids, but I don't know if you've had a four-year-old. They're a little obstreperous, let me put it that way. Coming up right after this very, very, very short break, Michael Patrick Leahy is joining us. Breitbart News, writer extraordinaire, who has been digging deeper into the immigration issue than anybody in the mainstream media dares to. Michael Patrick Leahy coming right up. No false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting
1: a a, a global prize for what you've been doing, because it's really something that nobody else has done, and and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan.
0: This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. It is 60 minutes past the hour, and joining us now, the great Michael Patrick Leahy. Michael, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fabulous, uh, Lee, and I'm uh, delighted to be on your program once again.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Happy New Year, and appreciate you. We've had snafus, Michael, as you know. You're supposed to be on a Monday, and then there was a huge technical snafu, and then we couldn't get you yesterday, because you're obviously in demand. you are very, very popular and uh and uh so, so we couldn't get you but let's let's get into this stuff uh we're We're less than three weeks away from President Trump being inaugurated we're less than uh three weeks away from them putting Jeff Sessions being nominated to be the attorney general. so let's just start there, and I want to get into the story you published recently on Breitbart about the spike in tuberculosis rates. But first off, for a guy who covers the immigration issue and the refugee resettlement issue, how do you feel about the idea of Jeff Sessions being the attorney general? What do you think the impact of that's going to be?
1: Well, he is the uh, most uh, intelligent, most well-versed member of the United States Senate on that topic.
0: Uh, We seem to have lost Michael.
1: Michael? I can't hear him. Hang on. We uh, Michael,
0: I cannot hear. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Mike, start again. Oh, we've we've lost Michael. Michael will be back in a second. I couldn't hear him for some reason. Then I heard him. Then he vanished. I think by saying something about technical snafus, I snafu'd things. That's entirely possible. Either that, or that was the segment that Michael has no opinion on. Jeff Sessions. It's possible that Michael Patrick Leahy. Who really, you got to read his stuff. I'm going to give you a hint for reading Breitbart. If there's a writer who you like, click on their name in the story. So you see a story by Michael Patrick Leahy, for instance. Then when you click on the story, at the top of the story in the upper left-hand corner is the author's name. And if you click on that name, you see all the stories by that author. Have you done that? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But you should do that. And particularly for a guy like Michael, you know, there's some writers at Breitbart who cover beats. There's some people who do general stuff. And again, nothing wrong with that. That's a a good thing. But a lot of us cover beats and we hit the same story, the same big broad narrative over and over from different angles. Mike is one of them. A.W.R. Hawkins is one of them. Let's see if we can get Michael back. Hey, Mike, how you doing?
1: I am back I guess uh you know the new year you just uh, everybody's working out the kinks in the technology.
0: I should I should not say the I should not talk about the SNAFUs. I'm not going to say that word because I think it will <laughs> I think it will curse me. But I was asking about what what you think of uh Jeff Sessions being installed as Attorney General and what impact you think that might have on
1: immigration policy. Uh, For those of us who who believe in in, uh, borders and uh, uh, controlling uh, immigration into the United States, it's the very best news possible. Uh, Jeff Sessions is the most knowledgeable member of uh, the entire Congress, that's the Senate or the House of Representatives. Uh, With regards to the issue of immigration policy and what's really happening out there and how to stop uh, the flow of illegal immigrants and the uh, flow of refugees with uh, security problems and with public health problems. And uh, he could not have had a better choice for attorney general. Yeah,
0: I agree. And, and it's one of those things where, when I heard AG, I was a little disappointed because I was hoping he'd be in a position where he have a little more direct control over immigration, but then I realized, no, no, this is much better. Uh, it's, it's, because there's so many legal issues and as we've discussed before so we have so there's legal immigration right there's people coming into the country legally they're interested in and there's a variety of ways that can happen uh you know they 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 go through the process of immigrating legally maybe they uh won the lottery which is a whole different issue I'm not sure we should have one of those I don't know how you feel about that I'm iffy on the lottery how do you feel about the lottery Michael well, I, that,
1: I'm not really focused that much on, uh, on that aspect of it, Lee, but I will tell you this, I agree with you 100% that uh, as Attorney General, uh, Sessions will have the most impact on improving our immigration policy, and here's why. Uh, really, the Obama administration has failed to enforce existing law. If you simply enforced existing law, uh, you would have uh, a much better handle on the flow of illegal uh, uh, immigrants into the United States, as well as the flow of unvetted refugees into the United States, that's one of the the, the key issues here. simply enforcing the law uh, will have a dramatic impact on on this negative flow of uh, of uh, uh, illegal immigrants into the United States.
0: Well, that's where I was headed. Actually, I was talking about look, we have legal immigration, we have illegal immigration. But we have this category of stuff, including the refugee program, including the H-1B guest worker program, that's mainly for high-tech people, then the EB-5 program, which was a way to give people visas in exchange for them investing money. We have those things like that, that I consider sort of extra legal. They're legal, but some of the stuff that we're talking about, like when when thank God she didn't win, but when Hillary Clinton was talking about bringing in five hundred and fifty thousand more refugees, would that have gone through Congress, or does some of this stuff that happens with refugees happening sort of
1: outside
0: the traditional approval checks and balances system?
1: Well, the statutory authority asking? for the yeah yeah the statutory authority for the federal refugee uh, program came from the nineteen eighty Refugee Act, the Refugee Act of nineteen eighty. The funding for it comes from Congress, so Congress has to approve the funding for the resettlement of refugees, but the selection of the countries where they come from and and really control over the vetting process, that's all part of the executive branch. The president controls that. The president could literally uh, tomorrow, this president won't, but in, in two weeks and two days, the next president might very well say, you know, uh, you've been bringing in uh, refugees at a rate of, uh, really this year, at a rate of 100,000 a year is the rate that they've been coming in. And they're coming in from Somalia and Syria with security problems and public health problems, high levels of uh, of active TB uh, among rec- resettled refugees. The president has the authority to say, I don't want any more refugees coming in from Syria or Somalia. And they, they would stop. They would not be allowed to come in under that program. All executive authority. I suspect. Yeah, and I expect that that the number of refugees coming into the United States, which were under this program, eighty-five thousand in fiscal year two thousand sixteen, which ended on September thirtieth, two thousand sixteen. Um, now there have been over twenty-five thousand in the first few months of fiscal year two thousand seventeen. I think in the last nine months, last eight and a half months of uh, fiscal two thousand seventeen, that. That rate is going to be cut in half, if not more, by President elect, soon to be President Trump.
0: And I, I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about the extra legal stuff, because here's the thing legal immigration isn't that controversial, right? Most people, are, you know, we, 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 we are a nation of immigrants. That's true. And.
1: Well, except when, let me point this out we really weren't a nation of immigrants between 1925 and 1965. There was it was yes, virtually impossible to, to to come into the United States, and the reason for that, as you know, is because of the the uh, the need felt to assimilate the number of refugees that came into the United States, primarily from Eastern Europe. I think during the the period between 1890 and, and 1920, uh, we had you know the highest foreign-born percentage of the United States until that time. Uh, around 1920, which was about 12%. Now we're up to over 13 almost 14%. And I think the assimilation uh, worked pretty well uh, between 1920 and 1965. But uh, the assimilation uh, in this current period has not worked out so well for a whole number of reasons, mostly because the uh, a good number of the immigrants are coming from uh, Middle Eastern countries—they're—they're they're Muslim, and they don't want to assimilate.
0: Well, and I think we can go a step further. Tell me if you disagree. That one of the issues with Muslim refugees isn't just that they don't want to assimilate; it's that non-assimilation is built into Islam. You are there. There are aspects of Islam, uh, including speaking Arabic, including. Rules and things like wearing hijabs and stuff like that are simply built in, and so therefore, it's it's not an accident that there's less assimilation. Am I, from what you know on on Islam,
1: does that sound accurate to you? I think that's probably the case. Uh, I also would say that um, um, we 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 have a, a situation here where uh, the. Federal government under the Democratic leadership of President Bill Clinton and President Barack Obama has made a policy to replace the plan of assimilation with what they call, quote, integration, but really isn't integration in the sense that you and I know it from integration of African Americans uh, with uh, uh, white population, uh, Caucasian population in the 1960s. It's really uh, a failure to accept any uh, uh, most American traditions.
0: Yeah, and I I think one of the really interesting aspects about this is that when you get into these extra-legal immigration policies, like I mentioned H-1Bs, EB-5s, the refugee program, most citizens really don't know very much about them. They don't understand the rules, for instance. So if you talk about the refugee program, for instance, when the refugees come over, what do they – like if you you immigrate to the United States, if you legally immigrate. You don't get much. In other words, you, you you come over and now you have the ability to work and and live. But what happens when refugees come over? Do they are they given any benefits or any entitlements?
1: Well, they get a huge number of benefits uh, for a variety of things: for housing, for lodging, uh, for uh, medical coverage. Uh, for food just cash uh, uh, payments for the first uh, eight months really they're eligible for the center for immigration studies estimated that the expense of the average refugee from the middle east here in the united states um, to taxpayers for five five years of their arrival has been over sixty five thousand (laughs) dollars per refugee
0: that's a lot of money and especially when you talk about the number of
1: refugees that that, that, that they've been bringing. Yes. Well, it, as it turns out, you know, of those eighty-five thousand refugees that arrived here in the United States under this program throughout fiscal uh, two thousand sixteen, about forty-four percent of them were Muslim, primarily from Middle East countries.
0: Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stratahan. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stratahan. There we go. Hey, hey, Mike, we are
2: Michael. here. We are
0: We're here sorry about that. Hang on one second. No worries. Hopefully that played a couple times. Um, So, yeah, let's talk about this. You had a big story on Monday about the big increase in tuberculosis cases. So tell us about that. Give us some background on that story and what you've learned.
1: Well, as you know, for well over a year, I have attempted to find out from uh, the CDC Centers for Disease Control and and mostly from various, uh, you know, more than two dozen state public health departments, How many refugees have been diagnosed with tuberculosis here in the United States? Tuberculosis, as you know, for the first time in 23 years, increased in 2015 by uh, 1.7 percent, up to 9,563 cases. Most of that increase is due to the rise in foreign-born cases of tuberculosis. Uh, Two-thirds of those in 2015 were uh, foreign-born. 30 years ago, only 22 percent of our TB cases were foreign-born. And a good chunk of those foreign-born cases of TB were refugees. Uh, I didn't have any specific data on that. So I went sort of state by state to find this out. And of all the states I talked to, only 15 provided some data on it. Um, Some was partial. Nobody really tried to – a few states gave me full information ultimately, but most states tried to avoid giving full information. I'd calculated that there, over the past several years, 476 refugees have been diagnosed with active tuberculosis over the past several years. Guess what? I finally found the data that the Centers for Disease Control has been putting together annually, but sort of publishing but hiding. I finally found it by accident, and it turns out that uh, I had underestimated, uh, based on the data that I'd been given, the number of cases of active TB among refugees uh, by a factor of three. The total number is at least 1,565 cases of active TB in four years between 2012, fiscal 2012, calendar 2012, and calendar 2015. But that number, Lee, even underestimates the total number because four states and two cities refused to provide that breakdown. And it won't surprise you who the four states and two cities were. One was Arizona, uh, but the, 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 another state uh, was Illinois, and two others were Washington and Virginia. And the, the two cities that refused to provide that data were, were Washington, D.C. and, wait for it, New York City.
0: That's very interesting. And so now, how, how did, are they able to get away with refusing to provide that data? Isn't that something? Isn't that a a valid function of government to provide that data to citizens? Yes,
1: it is. It is. It's interesting. I asked that very question of the Virginia Department of Public Health, and they said that they deemed it wasn't a priority to provide that information to CDC. Then I asked them, "Well, the CDC and forty-five other states think it's a priority. Why did you not think it was a priority, and why do you think you have the statutory right?" not to provide that information. When the phone didn't ring, Lee, I knew it was a Virginia Department of Health with an answer to that question.
0: <laughs> and just so nothing. They
1: just no they they didn't do it and they don't have to explain it to you. That's it. Well, they haven't explained it to me, and nor has the, the New York City Department of Public Health hasn't even deigned to respond to any of my inquiries. So. But, but, you know, this is a pattern and, and that, that we've seen. It's a very surprising pattern. And, and, and the case is that um, you find that almost all, it doesn't matter which, whether it's a red state or blue state, almost all mm. state employees of public health departments Are uh, try to obscure the data here about uh, immigrant health records. Um, They they're not cooperative. If they have a choice between hiding it or making it public, most of them hide it. That's also true for county public health departments. Back to the question you said of of enforcing the law, the Refugee Act of 1980 actually requires that um, the resettlement agencies report this data to county health departments and state health departments uh, and make it available. But nobody is holding their feet to the fire. Least of all the county health departments or the state health departments. It's very shocking to see that, but that's, that's, the, that's what we come to these days.
0: We're talking to Breitbart writer, Michael Patrick Leahy about the reporting he's done on the refugee crisis and the health consequences of that crisis, including big jumps in the number of tuberculosis cases now Michael in the the last few minutes we have with you here a lot of these cases and you know I you know both you and I have covered this and we we work together pretty extensively uh, behind the scenes trying to try to get these stories written it's interesting how a lot of the refugees seem to be going into the upper midwest and plains states and and you know western up, upper western states i'm thinking specifically of Idaho, the Dakotas, uh, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota, right? We've seen quite a bit of refugee activity up there. And particularly as it relates per capita, in other words, the number of refugees for the size of the population, there's been significantly more per capita in some of those states, those big states. And I mean, big geographically but small population states you know a state like South Dakota is a huge state but it's only got about 800,000 people in it so why why do you think that is do you think there's a reason why we've seen that yes
1: I think it's a conscious effort to plant refugees in in red states uh, and to in and I I suspect uh, I would tend to think that people who say that that this is a, a conscious effort to sort of uh, be part of efforts to turn red states blue, I think that may well be the case. So, for instance, if you look at the top five states for refugee resettlement, refugees per capita during the first three months of fiscal 2017, Nebraska is at the very top, 26.3 refugees per 100,000 population, in other words, 502 refugees settled in the first month, and they have a population of 1.9 million. Right behind that, Kentucky, 21.6 refugees per 100,000. Then uh, that's North Dakota, rather 21.6 per hundred thousand. Then Kentucky in third place, 19.7. Arizona, 19.5. Idaho, 19.0. And of course, at the very bottom are uh, a number of uh, well protected by liberal uh, uh, politician states, such as uh, Delaware. Delaware uh, had has received no refugees in fiscal 2017, and very few over the past 10 years. uh, Delaware was represented in the Senate by Vice President Joe Biden for over three decades, four decades, I think, actually.
0: Now, I had a very interesting conversation with a New York Times reporter recently, and they were asking me about the refugee situation and about some of the reporting I'd done on it. And I had used the term cover-up, and I think I used it in the conversation with them. As well, I said I think there's a cover-up, and they questioned me on that. They said, well, why do you, why do you say that there's a cover-up of this? And uh, so let me ask you that. First off, do you think this is a story that the media has covered up? And if so, what do you mean by cover-up? When you say
1: cover-up, what does that mean to you? Well, clearly they're not reporting on it, and which is stunning to me because uh, I, I, when I started reporting on this over a year ago, uh, the news was so uh, compelling. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many drudge links my stories have gotten over the past year. Probably, you know, 50 or 60, maybe more, uh, just because it's it's stunning information about the public health risk uh, in terms of tuberculosis posed by refugees around the country. I was certainly that uh, there would be some other mainstream media reporter who would s- see this. It's all information that if you just you know, do basic reporting you can uncover. So a lot of it's publicly reported. A lot of it you can ask um, the state health departments of the CDC and ultimately you you may get it. But no one in the mainstream media has followed up on this. No one. Well, you can see a few kind of conservative online publications have, have followed up. Uh, Daily Caller's done a little bit on it. The um, uh, uh, World News uh, World Daily's done a little bit on it. But besides that, Nobody's really reporting on it in an accurate way. And then when I see that, you know, when the refugee issue, not the refugee public health issue, when the refugee issue is reported, it's almost always slanted. Uh, and the only information that the New York Times would typically take or the Washington Post would take would be the uh, the, the, the very pro-refugee, pro-open borders immigration uh, statements that come from, Uh, the the refugee resettlement agencies, who, by the way, are paid over a billion dollars a year to do this, Um, and then the the bureaucrats uh, in the Obama administration and Washington, and then the various state-level bureaucrats.
2: Well, and
0: one of the things I brought up with this reporter, because they were like, well, I don't see it as a cover-up, is people, I think, need to realize how the media covers stuff up. One of the biggest ways they can cover stuff up is simply by omission. If they don't report on a story... It, you know what I mean, right? If, if they don't report on the story, sure. particularly the big media outlets, right? So the, the coverage of, let's say, the Twin Falls story, and you and I both know this because we've seen it and we've talked about it. The coverage of the Twin Falls story in the past two or three months, right around the time of the election, was all about how bad Breitbart was. That was what the, that's what the mainstream media's coverage was, New York Times, Washington Post. All these about five or six stories. But
1: they would say that, but then they wouldn't point to any facts
0: which we got wrong. (laughs) Yes, yes. Or they'd say they'd point out that the that the number of you know tuberculosis cases had only written by you know ten in Idaho or whatever, something like that. And that 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 may have been true or whatever the number was. Right, it was a small number, but they're not looking at the bigger picture. So once again, they leave that out. So how frustrating is it for you to look at the way the national media reports on, on these issues? When you, Knowing what you know, what do you think the number one thing is that the American public is not being told?
1: Well, it's not frustrating for me at all. It, it, I think it's wonderful because, uh, you know, really, we uh, I'm, I, I've reported on this topic more than anybody else, and it's very easy for me to you know, find additional stories to report on because no one else is doing it makes my life easy i just report the facts and no one else uh, apparently cares to report on them um I, you know i think ultimately i'm not that frustrated personally that you know uh, new york times or and, and abc cbs cnn aren't reporting on this because what i've noticed here is and, and with the rise of breitbart's popularity and social media i think the news has changed so much, Lee, that people are getting their news more and more through Facebook and other online media outlets. And frankly, my stories on this refugee health issue uh, uh, receive routinely uh, huge readerships. Uh, typically, any story I do will get between you know, ten and 50,000 Facebook shares in the course of two or three days. I, that's pretty good coverage.
0: And I think I think it's an example of the media not giving oxygen to this. The media trying to suppress the story by omission, right? The media trying to suppress the story by omission has fueled that. In other words, if people were seeing the refugee crisis covered accurately in mainstream media publications, as you say, it probably would equal less traffic for your stories. Because people would be like, oh, yeah, well, we all know about that. That's that's not news. But there's this sense of you are it's almost like you're reporting hidden secret knowledge or something like that. And you're not. You're yeah. reporting information you've gathered. It's from sort of
1: the CDC. It's sort of hidden in plain sight, although uh, I, I do have to do some digging to get many public uh, health officials to respond on this arena. But, look, I think both you and I share – uh, our, our former uh, uh, Chairman Executive chairman of Breitbart Steve Bannon's philosophy on, on reporting Facts get Shares and opinions get yawns That's what Steve Bannon said And that's why uh, That's why I think Steve and I Have, have gotten along so well why you get along so well with Steve Is because that's what my reporting focuses on So if you look at er- any of my stories On this they are chock bill with facts with multiple links. And so uh, people really are very interested in finding out facts. So I report facts. And the interesting thing is uh, I, I would love to see somebody from the mainstream media come in and try and debunk any of the reporting that I've done in this arena, because they can't debunk the facts, particularly those facts that are obtained through public Data sources such as state health departments or the Centers for Disease Control. Yeah, and it should be pointed out too. If we're talking about cover up, I think what you
0: explained—you're getting the runaround, you're getting from these public health agencies. Agencies to me is also part of the cover up. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't take that long for you to get this data. And the fact that they don't want you to have. Let me add
1: to that. Let me add to that. Uh, In many of these not all of them, but of the 15 states that actually reported the data, many of them underreported it. Uh, And I'll have follow-up stories on the states that underreported the actual data by a significant amount. Uh, And and I think that underreporting was uh, intentional. In fact, one state, for instance, that gave me the uh, refugee data, uh, TV data, but they very clearly answered only one part of the question, which was what percentage of them Uh, 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 were diagnosed within a year of arrival and they failed to answer the question how many were diagnosed uh, more than a year after arrival as it turns out the number they gave me was really only 40 percent of the actual number reported by the Centers for Disease Control because they omitted as you say the number of refugees diagnosed with active TB more than a year after their arrival. Yeah it's just, just amazing Michael once again you know I'm a big
0: fan of your work and uh we have more stuff coming. You you know what I'm talking about, um, and I don't want to I don't want to tease it too much. Yes, so we there's do. A, there's a there's a there's a story you and I've been talking about relates to the refugee program in the in again one of these upper upper Midwest plains states that will be coming in the next couple of days. And I have actually more news on that since you and I spoke. I know I'm teasing everybody, but <laughs> but yeah, been, I think leave it at that. Saying,
1: I, I tell you why because it's a big story, but the way yeah. Lee Stranahan works, you don't go with a story, Lee, until you've nailed down all the facts, and uh, you're buttoning it down right now. But it's going to be another big story.
0: Yeah, it is. A, it is a big story, and I'm also hoping to get Ann Corcoran on uh, the show here to talk about some of these issues because you and I are also big, big fans of uh, Ann's work. She's uh, her Refugee Resettlement Watch website. I think is a is a must for you to greet With that, right? You're you're. I'm not putting words in your mouth.
1: Absolutely, no, no. She's she's a she's a great she's a great example of you might even call it citizen journalism to a degree. Although she wouldn't, uh, I think she she wouldn't call herself a journalist. She's more of a blogger, but she does she does report the uh, facts, which then uh, you know I often look at, double check, and then use the facts originally found in her uh, blog once verified uh, and, and include them in my stories.
0: And she's just tireless, too. That's a, that one of the things I love about Ann. Is she's she's a worker. I don't know how else to put it, but she's out there working on this stuff all the time. But of course, so are you. Michael Patrick Leahy, everyone. Thanks very much for coming on, Mike. Appreciate it. Lee, a great pleasure. There's Michael Patrick Leahy. It is 48 minutes past the hour. You're listening to Radio
1: Stranahan. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter, who is well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan.
0: Do you watch the news and find yourself thinking, I can do better than this? If you know how bad the mainstream media is and you want to make media that's better than they are, I started Citizen Journalism School just for you. CitizenJournalismSchool.com will give you the information and allow you to sign up for the free mailing list and get our free course, Building Your Own Media Empire. But I want to tell you about a program that is for people who are serious about a career in journalism. If you really want to make a difference, we have a program called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you work directly with me, one-on-one and in small group settings. And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of Journalism School. Go to CitizenJournalismSchool.com right now to get more information. CitizenJournalismSchool.com. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. It is 49 minutes past the hour. What have I done? Did I do something wrong? I may have. Nope, Nope. everything's fine. I lost the screen, but it's back now. So don't worry if you were worried about me losing the screen. Not that you knew. You don't need to worry about that. Great interview with Michael Patrick Leahy. Once again, want to thank him. Make sure you find his stuff on Breitbart News. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about immigration and fake news in just a minute. You're listening to Radio Stranahan.
2: You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call
0: us. Six one nine-nine two four-O seven eight six. If you want to call in in the remaining 10 minutes or so of the program, 6199240786, you can call in with your questions, comments, complaints. Possible prank. But you know, it's interesting you talked I was talking to Michael uh, Leahy about the immigration reporting. and boy, we do have some stuff coming. If anyone thought we were done reporting on the Twin Falls story, for instance, something I covered extensively back in the fall of 2015. 2016, forgive me. I'm still not used to 2017. But if anyone thought we were done with that, they don't know me or my work as a bulldog, relentless, persistent journalist. But we have more coming on the Twin Falls story. We have unreported stuff that we've never gotten to that we're going to get to on Twin Falls. We have more coming on a story that we teased a little bit, but we're nailing down the facts right now, and you'll see. It's another very interesting, shocking story of what's going on. But the most shocking part of the whole thing, and I touched on this with Michael Leahy, is the cover-up aspect. This is simply a story that the media to cover. And I think that part of the reason for that is purely ideological. And we on the right talk a lot about media bias. We talk a lot about ideological bias. But I think there's another factor here, which is establishment bias. Reporters simply don't want to go up against the establishment politicians. The people supporting the refugee program are not all Democrats. I will repeat, they're not all Democrats. Plenty of Republicans, like the Republican governor of Idaho, Butch Otter, for a perfect example. Butch Otter is, has, has been traditionally a very big advocate of the refugee program. So start part of it is reporters need access. And when you go up against the establishment, when you tell the truth, you simply don't get that access. And it's not Republican or Democrat. It's simply, they don't want to piss off the establishment. Pardon my French, by the way, the word establishment is French. That's not what I was getting at. But anyway, we have a caller on right now from the 423 area. That's the only way I can, there's no screening here. So when I hit the button, it's four two, three. four two three, You are on the air. What can we do for you today? You're listening to Radio Stranahan.
2: Hey there. I've called. I called before. And when I work from home, I'm I'm able to um, to listen to you. Um, my question – or not my question, but something that you guys were talking about um, about the information being pretty much hidden in plain sight. That's the point of that. Um, I've 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 been Hearing things and reading things that before I never really, you know, I watch the news and then I turn it off and go on about my day. But I'm learning things that, and now, and I'm at a stage where I'm mad, <laughs> um, to see that how 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 many people are being, because I, you know, just average people I work with, my family, I'll tell them things and and they've never even heard of it. And I know what they're I know what they're feeling because I've been in the same situation. And I'm at a point where it, I'm, I'm really upset about it, and I want to do something, and I, I plan to, just a matter of the right timing. Um, but until then, I'm trying to get as much information out to people that I know um, don't have access to it.
0: Well, that's great. I, I think <laughs> that's what you have to do. I, I, you know, unfortunately, you're, we're up against a culture uh, that on a lot of these stories, the media simply doesn't report them. And so what happens is, I'll just give a simple example. For a long time, it was only sites on the right that were reporting things like uh, illegal immigrants being arrested who'd been deported multiple times, who'd committed horrible crimes, right? Crimes that were preventable because if a person had been deported the third or fourth time, the crime wouldn't have happened, right? So what happens is when you only see a story on Breitbart or when you only see a story on Breitbart and WorldNet Daily or Breitbart and Infowars, and you don't see it reported on NBC, CBS, CNN, right? USA Today it seems suspicious. And I understand that actually, right? It looks a little weird. Like, well, why are they saying it? And nobody else is saying it. And I think that's one of the problems that people come up against is your if you know more than your friends, it's because you're reading different sources and doing the work yourself. And they're just doing – you know, you shouldn't have to do all that work. In other words, in, in an ideal world, I don't think you'd have to do all that work. So what's, what's the reaction when you, when you tell people some of the things you've been learning? What do you, what do you get from your friends?
2: Uh, well, I'm thinking right now of my family. Some family members. Now, my dad. He he's been to it for years. He, he'll say things, and I thought, oh my God, he, you know, because he's sort of a mix. That's why I was. I always liked um, Donald Trump and Alex Jones. He doesn't bother me because my dad's kind of like in your face. That type of that type of personality, but it's always tr- truth. You know, he's always motivated by truth, and if he's wrong, he'll he'll tell you. I don't know who who they are. What I'm saying is just that brash personality, Uh, you know, the military type. That's how my dad is. But my mother, my sister, and her daughters, they looked at me like, I mean, they they looked at me like I was crazy. You know, I was telling them things, and I said, look it up yourself, you know, check it out, because, but but they literally, they, they looked at me like I was losing it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, well, I've never even heard of this, Keisha, you know, I think that maybe you're misunderstanding, but I gave them you know, some websites and everything, but they're the type of people, they just, they watch the news in the evening, that's it. They don't really, you know, they may read the newspaper um and they just take whatever they hear and, and go with it. They don't question it at all. And, well, um, and, and anyways, I understand, so
0: I, I, understand, them, I, 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 I I'll, in, in their defense, I'll say I understand that. In other words, in a in a normal world, you should be able to watch the news, and get a good picture of what's going on. You know what I mean? Like that's the way it should be. And so, it's kind of a horrible state of affairs that in order to get informed, you have to go do the extra work. But I agree with what you're doing. That's the only way you you can do it. But what were you going to say? We only we have only a couple minutes left. But. What were we going to say? Well,
2: no, no, that was it. Basically, one of the one of the my sister's uh, daughter. She's eighteen. You know, she thinks she knows everything because she gets all her information, I guess, from her friends. I, I don't know, um, but she was on the whole Donald Trump a and you know, everything they're hearing on the news and at school probably. But um, and so and so, I get. I asked her a few questions. You know, she couldn't answer the questions, and then I told her. Look at these websites. Just read a couple of these stories. Look at it yourself. You know, if you hear something, go look it up. Read a couple of uh, sources, and then, you know, and then call me and we'll talk about it or whatever. Because she was like, I had no idea. You know, I was just pointing out little things that she would have never heard on, you know, her regular local news or any cable news network. So anyway, but I appreciate you taking my call. Well,
0: no, of course, and I appreciate you calling in. I I think you've identified a great point. And once again, thanks, thanks very much for calling in. I think you've identified a great point, though. And this goes to what I was saying. We live in a culture when the truth is hard to come by. You're not going to hear the truth. And you also hit on another important aspect of this, which is peer pressure. There's an incredible amount of peer pressure. If you're the only one with a belief, look, this is basic human psychology. Right. If you get a group of people, if you get a tribe of people and one person believes something and nobody else does, there's going to be pressure on that person to conform. And going up against that pressure is risky, and that's what we've seen. But I've been noticing this for a few years now. I've been noticing people like you and like a lot of the readers of Breitbart. And look, the fact that Breitbart's getting 45 million unique visitors recently 45 million unique visitors in a month 45 million Americans visited Breitbart in a month that tells you that there's a lot of people who are really hungry for the truth but I'll, I'll just close with this if people are hungry for the truth we need to give them that diet and that's why I am so adamant about we have to do a better job and it's so, I'm so adamant about the kind of reporting that Michael Leahy and I do where it is strictly factual based. And it's also, by the way, why I'm so excited about what we're going to be doing at Citizen Journalism School. And again, I I wish I could explain in detail, but we'll have it for you very soon. It's a way that I think really could have a huge impact on what's going on with news. It's going to add a lot of work to what I do every day, but I think it'll be worth it and we'll pay off. That's all for now. Until next time, I'm Lee Stranahan. We'll catch you tomorrow on the radio. Bye-bye.